Well, good morning. It's great to see all of you this morning. And it's even better to be able to bring God's word from 2 Timothy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are good to us. Your faithfulness abounds. Your mercies are new every morning. And your steadfast love is without end. Pray this morning as we come to your word, you would open our eyes, enlighten our minds, and bring our hearts to the truth of your gospel through Jesus Christ, for his sake. Amen. Well, as you might have picked up by now, Stephen and I are preaching through the book of 2 Timothy which has been wonderful for us, not only to have a consistency, but also we, this past week, along with Daniel, were able to spend some time in the Word together, getting to get a better sense of what uh, this rich letter from Paul to his beloved child in the faith is, is shaping him in and, and how it's encouraging him. And one of the wonderful things, especially this morning as we come to God's Word, is that this passage is about a missionary who has been imprisoned for his faith, and he's writing to a, another young evangelist, another young missionary, to say, it's absolutely worth it. And I pray that as we get to this text this morning, we can see how God's word is the same yesterday and today and forever, because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so we can come to this text knowing that we cannot be ashamed. We, we are able to see and trust the goodness of God's Word. Well, let me read our text for us this morning, and I'm trying to give us a little more of the context than just what you might see in your Bibles, and if you have the ESV that we use. The paragraph is just 15 through 18 of chapter 1. And I'm trying to give us a verse before that and a verse after that so we see a little bit more of where we've come and we can see a little bit more of where we're going next week. So we're starting in chapter 1, verse 14, and going into chapter 2, verse 1. Here's God's word for us this morning. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes, may the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace of that is in Christ Jesus. Amen. This is the reading of God's word. Let us attend to it and see how true it is today. So to get a little bit of an overview of where Paul is going through this letter of 2 Timothy, he started off in, in chapter 1, verse 6, and, and encouraged Timothy to fan into flame the gift of God, this faith once delivered to all the saints that has now changed his whole entire life and existence, and now Paul's encouraging him 
not to be ashamed. Chapter 1, verse 8. But share, not in all the blessings, not yet, but share in suffering as Paul himself is an example of. And then in chapter 2, verse 1, we just saw it. He says, to, how can we do this? By being strengthened in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And where's the source of that? By the very word of God, he's going to say in, in chapter 3.16, the, the God-breathed word that is profitable for all things in these areas of life and sanctification. And so his exhortation at the end is to preach the word. Be diligent to preach the word in season and out of season. And so specifically in this little chunk of this text, we're going to see, as Stephen mentioned a couple weeks ago in 113, the, the pattern of sound words that is the gospel that Paul has entrusted to Timothy through his message of preaching and the life that he's lived as an evangelist. He's tearing him to, to shape his life around that so that it shapes others. It's the pattern is like the outline of this builder's, the architect's plan. The message and the methods of the gospel of Christ. So Timothy is to model his life after Paul's. And of course, Paul modeled his life after Jesus. And the confirmation that this life-changing message has taken root is that it shapes how we suffer. And so Paul says this message is not just a, a, a nice tagline. It's not just a cool slogan that you're going to carry around with you. It's your very life. So for Paul to encourage Timothy not to be ashamed of this gospel, don't be ashamed, but to endure suffering of the testimony of our Lord and to guard the good deposit in 1 verse 14, he's giving in this passage, two negative examples of, of Phygelus and Hermogenes who have turned away from the shame that comes with potential suffering. He's given one positive example in Onesiphorus who's, who've leaned into that and earnestly, he says, sought after Paul and searched for him and refreshed him often. It wasn't just a one-off time, but a number of times. He's given those two negative and the one positive example of what this suffering, this worthwhile suffering for the gospel can look like. And all of this picks up exactly where he left off in the end of his first letter to Timothy, where he says in 1 Timothy 6.20, he says, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Guard it with your very life. And he says, avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. That's how he ends his first letter, and he picks up his second letter here in 2 Timothy, and there's not a one-to-one -one correspondence. I don't think that Phygelus and Hermogenes are those that have uh, swerved from the faith necessarily, but they're serving the example that Paul is trying to convey to Timothy. Stand firm in the faith. Don't turn away even and especially when there's opportunity that the world is going to shame you, stand firm. Now, as it turns out, as God would have it, this Sunday we, we get to commission uh, two groups that are going in very different parts of our world. And my encouragement is not just for them. 
there could be very many opportunities, especially Ellie as she's going down to the beach and interacting with people that are at the beach to do what people do at the beach, that she could have a decision to make. I could say what I need to say about the beauty of the captivating gospel of Jesus Christ and find some shame returned to me. Or I could say what I have to say because the gospel of Jesus Christ is worth it for eternity. And I can take whatever they give me because suffering for the gospel is always worth it. So this morning I want to look at what it means to turn towards the Lord because that's the the example is not to turn away from the Lord like these two negative examples did, but to turn towards the Lord so it shows us what we should do positively. Then secondly, I want to ask, what is, what, why should I turn towards the Lord? Because the answer to that is the second point. When mercy finds me, it means everything of what purpose I then serve in showing others mercy. And the third point is, to be strengthened by the graces, it answers the questions, how can I continue to do that? So I hope that as we ask these main questions and a lot of other questions of the text as we go through, that, that we find some clarity, that we understand what Paul's encouragement here, and that we can see by direct implication, this is what this text means. So what does that mean for me? What does it apply to my life? How does it make sense for where I am, because we're not all suffering in the same way. We're not all going to serve those in prison in a hard cultural environment. But it's just as true for those that are as it is for us here today. So let me start by asking, what do we do with these two neg- neg- negative, excuse me, negative examples? What do we do with uh, Phygelus and Hermogenes? The, they're described as, Paul says, all who are in Asia... In verse 15, all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom all of these people in in Asia at the time is not what we think of as Far East Asia, China, etc. Asia in that time was the the coast of Turkey, which is where the city of Ephesus is. That Timothy is an evangelist in that area. And Paul's saying, as I went through there, and they had opportunity to support me and encourage me, even when they know that Paul's now in prison the second time in Rome, They all turned away from me. They turned their back on me. They shunned me. They didn't encourage me, support me. Paul's going to encourage Timothy later on in in chapter 2, verse 24, how to deal with those specifically. He says to patiently endure evil, correcting opponents with gentleness that God may perhaps return them to repentance or turn them from sin and turn them to God, leading to a knowledge of, of the truth. He's going to get there. How to deal with those two examples that he's kind of now dimed out, right? He's labeled them. He's named them. And not only Timothy, but all of those in Ephesus know these guys. And so they know what to do with them later. But what do we do with these negative examples? I, I don't think he's not telling us, don't be like them. Because the point throughout this letter back in chapter 1, is do not be ashamed. He's encouraging us to see through whatever possible shame might come. So what do we do with shame? We, We turn towards the Lord 
and we turn towards his messengers. This is the explicit instructions for the flock that Paul is giving us. When he says, don't be ashamed, he's showing us realistically the problem that shame can bring. And we see that all over our society, especially, I think, young people today see heaps of shame in so many different directions. And and this text isn't an explanation, a definition of shame, but underneath the exhortation not to be ashamed is, what do we do then with shame? Shame can be explained, though. It's, it's a sense that I've done wrong and others know it. It's a little bit different than guilt, but it's often overlapping. Y'all see this all over the place, right? It's, guilt can be like, I am wrong because I've done wrong. And shame says, and other people know it to some degree. Piper suggests that there's both misplaced shame that wrong kind of shame that leads us in some dark and doubting places. And there's well-placed shame. There's shame that we should actually feel for doing wrong, unrighteous things. But what do we do with that shame? Our problem is not that we deal with shame rightly. Our problem is that we feel shame from the wrong sources. And we don't feel healthy shame for the right reasons. So just really quickly, what what do we do? We see shame throughout the Bible. From the very beginning of, of creation, when Adam and Eve eat the fruit, what's their response? They hide themselves. They sow fig leaves together. They turn away from God. When David sins against Uriah with Bathsheba, he denies the reality of the situation until Nathan the prophet calls him right out for it. And even then, he wants to kind of gloss it over until the Holy Spirit convicts him and we see that healthy picture of right repentance from shame in Psalm 51. Even when Paul's here mentioning uh, Phygelus and Hermogenes as being ashamed of the gospel and turning away from him, and the gospel, the emphasis is what to do with that. And the answer comes in the beauty of mercy. If we ignore that, though, we end up into the two categories that Jesus really puts some weight on in Mark 38. He says, whoever is ashamed of me, this is Jesus speaking, whoever is ashamed of me, Jesus, and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation Of him, that person who's ashamed, will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father? That's some pretty weighty consequences of being ashamed of Christ and his message and his messengers. So what do we do rightly when shame comes, when we feel that shame, when we feel that weight of I'm wrong and others know it because of what I've done or what I've not done rightly. One author, uh, John Bloom, says that shame pronounces us guilty and deficient and lacking. But the mercy of Christ, Jesus pronounces us guiltless and promises that his grace 
will be sufficient for us in all our weakness. He's talking about 2 Corinthians 12 that we'll look at in a little bit. So in other words, to not be ashamed means to not feel the weight that the culture around us puts on what we believe and who we are. And when we do what's wrong and when we think not enough or or when we feel different, what do we do with that shame? We bring it to Christ and we receive his mercy. So some specific applications as we look at this, and I want to bring this to the level that Paul's talking here of specifically of those in prison. Are we ashamed of those in prison? And I don't want to miss that he's specifically physically talking about those behind bars. Do we have an opportunity to turn towards God's work, his work and his workers, those are that, that are actually incarcerated today? And I want to bring that application point because there's a huge ministry that, that even in our area, if you've heard of the MNA Mission to North America has a prison ministry that is a significant thing in our area. I, I personally know people that have benefited from men and women taking time, whether it's to write letters or to go visit those in prison because you have a huge opportunity to lay the free, beautiful grace and mercy of Jesus Christ before them. Or if you've heard of, I would strongly encourage you to look up a Christian brother of ours who none of us have met yet by the name of Wang Yi. He's a pastor in China. He's the pastor of Early Rain Covenant Church. I was sitting at a discipleship meeting, and as God would have it, he put me and two other pastors at the same table, and one of the other young pastors was a pastor from China who had been stuck in the States because of COVID, travel restrictions. And so his encouragement, this young pastor said, I can't go back to my homeland, so I'm stuck in, in, the, in America for a couple years, and I got nothing better to do than plant a church. What else better to do? And I was mentioning that, yeah, I've read about this, this young pastor in China. Have you heard of him? And he said, yes. He's a friend of mine. We, we study together. We've been to conferences together. And this is Wang Yi, the, the pastor of Early Rain Covenant Church. Please look it up, Google, or whatever you want to do. He's been in prison since 2019, and he wrote a letter for his elders to distribute 48 hours after he was incarcerated by the Chinese government. In other words, he'd been in prison a num- number of times before, but he knew it was going to stick if he was there for more than two days. And his letter, he calls it his letter of faithful disobedience. I'd love to hand this out to somebody if they're interested, or you can Google it later. Is a remarkable description, a personal testimony of the glory of the grace of Jesus Christ in the face of what I can't imagine of suffering and persecution. And he's not ashamed of the gospel of his Savior. Some of us need that encouragement to go to those who are imprisoned. But more often than not, probably in our context, those prisons aren't going to be physical bars and gates and locks. Those prisons are going to be mental, emotional, relational, the situations that we feel we're stuck in. 
So then my application is, how do we turn towards those? How do we turn towards others in their suffering before they're locked behind their personal bars, whether it's pre-divorce, pre-abortion, pre-separation, pre-drug addiction, pre-porn addiction, pre-any addiction? How are we reaching into those suffering places and not being ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ that is there, true and beautiful, in those prisons. Or, if we want to turn the mirror on our own hearts, how are we looking into the, our own prisons, the places that we feel stuck in a rut, whether it's an enslavement to sin, or it's the, the blindness that I can't see where I'm stuck. It could be sin patterns. It could be this comfort and convenience life. It could be the over-busyness that Pastor Robert talked about a few weeks ago. It could be just enduring and making it through long enough to, to get to the weekend or to get to the next vacation or to get to retirement. It could be a relationship rut. Any other thing that could lead to those prisons? How are we not ashamed of the gospel there? But see, the question we need to ask ourselves is, what do I do to stay out of that? What do I do when I see the moment of decision, when I could share this beautiful, captivating gospel? Or what do I do if I feel like there's going to be shame? Do I turn away from God, his kingdom work, and his workers? Or do I see where mercy has found me? That's the next question. When does mercy find us? In our text, we see that Onesiphorus, in verse 15, he often refreshed Paul. He was not ashamed of Paul's chains, but when he arrived in Rome, he searched for Paul earnestly and found him. Now, for Onesiphorus to go from Ephesus in Asia, that part of Turkey, all the way over to Rome is a bit of a hike. And all the way along that journey, he had to stay with people. He had to tell them where he's going and why. He's not to that. He's not a native to those areas. And especially when he was in Rome, he had to ask, where is this man imprisoned? It was most likely a house prison situation or, or a, a dungeon that the Romans weren't advertising. He was not going to show up and go to the visitor center and get the tour guide of all the prisons. And Oh yeah, Paul's at that one. He's having to ask, to seek, to knock. And every one of those steps, there's possible, not just shame, oh yeah, definitely shame, but personal persecution. Oh, you want to find Paul? I'll show you. Ching, ching, here's the lock that's going to imprison you as well, buddy. And Paul encourages him, may the Lord grant mercy not only to him, but to his household. It's like he's deployed and his family back home are feeling the weight of maybe this is dad, maybe this is a household servant that's gone looking for Paul, but the whole household is bearing some of that potential guilt and shame. And Paul says, may his whole house that's supporting him that's encouraging him, the senders of this encourager, may they also receive mercy. 
See, in other words, Paul is encouraging us. Please catch this. That in order to extend mercy, we must first receive mercy. And the mercy that we receive is the undeserved gift that God isn't treating us how we deserve. He's not giving us the punishment that we, that we have earned, the, the result of our sin, because of God's own mercy. This is his persistent character trait, the way that God always operates. He anchors this in Exodus 34, the Lord, the Lord, abounding in mercy and steadfast love, showing kindness to generations. And then specifically, Paul writes this in Titus 3, 5, and 7. He says, God saved us. Why? According to his mercy. So in finding Paul, Paul's prayer was that the Lord would continue to show Onesiphorus his mercy. How can this mean anything for us? Where have others turned towards us and been a conduit, a free-flowing source of God's mercy because they have received much mercy so they can share it with us? We, we get this from Jesus' own words in Matthew 5, 7. He says, Blessed are the merciful, those who share mercy, those who don't deal with us the way that we might deserve, for they shall receive mercy. That's not the first time they're receiving that mercy. They've been given it. That's why they can dish it out. But Jesus says they're blessed. Or in 1 Timothy, Paul says this, this saying is trustworthy and deserving full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners. Not those guys out there, but he says, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for the very reason that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience and his example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Timothy here is, is who Paul's hoping is that first example. Don't just hear what I'm teaching you, Paul's saying to Timothy. See how much it means to me. And then go and do likewise. So, why can I think that mercy actually has a purpose behind it? Why can I know that that is an anchoring source of truth that I can trust and stand firmly on, regardless the kind of shame or guilt or suffering or uh, unfriending or canceling or anything that that world out there is going to put on us? How can I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus Christ will never lessen his mercy for me? Turn to Hebrews 2, verses 10 and 11. The author here says, For it was fitting that he, Jesus, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. The free mercy and grace of Jesus Christ. And here he's saying, watch this, that is why he, Jesus, is not one single bit ashamed. He never has been or never will be the single bit ashamed to call you 
and me, his brother and sister. But Jesus, you don't know what I've done. Yeah, he does. You don't know my thoughts. Yeah, he does. You don't know how I mock them behind their back. Yes, he does. You don't know what I could have done better. You don't know all those times that I really tried, but I didn't make it up. Absolutely, he does. And he took those. He took your shortcomings. He took your shame and the guilt that others try to heap on you. He took all of that on himself on the cross and bore it fully and paid for it eternally. And he gives you, he gives you freely the undeserved mercy that he looks on you with favor and he calls you. He's not ashamed to call you his brother and sister. So then the last question is, how can I be bold? How can I live out my faith in this world around us? I'm today, I'm not that worried of going to prison for anything I believe or how I say it. I I don't think right now, like a pastor in China at Early Rain Covenant Church, I I don't think that they're going to come in and arrest me. They've also arrested over 200 members of his church, small group leaders. Can you imagine later tonight when you're meeting with your small group, they lock you in, small group leaders, youth leaders at school. I don't think that's happening yet. But the same shame and guilt that was in Phygelus and Hermogenes rears its ugly head in my heart. So how can I know that Christ will never be ashamed of me and that I can also never be ashamed of his gospel in this hostile world? What's going on right now to stand boldly that life begins at conception and that the image of an infinitely valuable God is put on that baby? That will bring you shame today. The description that marriage is between a man and a woman not just because some crazies back in the Middle Ages thought it up, but because God thought it up from the foundation of creation, that will get you canceled tomorrow. Having the stance that there's such thing as sin, that there's problems in our country bigger than politics, And those are the easy ones to talk about. Those are the ones that most of you would probably agree with me on. Those are the virtue signaling ones in some circles. To stand anchored on the gospel means that I cannot find shame any time that I'm, that I'm proclaiming, that I'm sharing, that I'm pleading with others to receive the gospel, to see the beauty of the captivating worth of Christ.
So the question is then, if I know how to turn, if I know why I need mercy, how can I continue to stand, to be strengthened, not just to endure, but to thrive and flourish in the midst of shame or suffering, canceling or being thought of as anything else? How can I stand and show the pride-devastating promise of God's grace? By looking through and seeing in chapter 2, verse 1, You then, my child Timothy, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Now he's springboarding. Paul's springboarding from what he just said that he prays that the Lord would show grace to Onesiphorus and his household right here and right now. But also, he says, may the Lord grant him to find mercy on that day. That day being judgment day, Onesiphorus is going to get even more eternally proclaimed and anchored mercy on Judgment Day, not because he earned it in doing what he did to encourage Paul, simply because Christ gave it. So he's getting mercy, and he will get mercy. And along the way, he's going to be strengthened, as Paul encourages to me, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. How can this be good news? How can this be the motivating factor to look in the face of people, whether it's Ellie on the beach or, or the whole team going up to Kentucky? Why are you going there? What are you going to do that's any big deal? I'm sharing the gospel through my words and through my work. That's why I'm going. Or, or the rest of us, as we are sending them and praying for them and deciding not to fill in the blank because I love Jesus on any of these issues. How can I be encouraged and strengthened in the grace that is in Christ Jesus? Paul answers that for us in 2, Timothy, or sorry, 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10. He said, this is Christ speaking directly to Paul. My grace, Christ's grace, is sufficient for you. We interpret that. We take that big word sufficient and meaning just barely enough. Like that's just going to barely get you there like one of those little medicine teaspoons that our, like our kids' medicine has, like that little teeny line at the bottom, like just enough, it'll get you good. No, no, no. Sufficient meaning fire hose dumped on your face. Grace upon grace. And then some for eternity. My grace is sufficient you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I'm content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul's writing this letter to Corinthians, like a lot of his other letters, to Thessalonians, to Colossians, to Philippians, with Timothy along his side because Timothy has been to those places, has seen those people, and now he ministers in Ephesus to encourage these saints. We're going to see next week in th these 
this beautiful gospel that he's going to entrust to these faithful men to hold strong on the doctrines of grace, to continue to remind them and be shaped in the renewing of their mind of what is true, and then to live that out, even and especially when the world sees that as foolishness or ignorance or bigotry or hate speech and suffer upon you and put shame and guilt. Paul calls that weakness. And he describes Christ's grace there as strength. Now the beauty of this phrase that we're going to unpack more next week, to be strengthened by grace, the word strengthened there is literally the word empowered. How can y'all be, how can I be empowered by grace that is simply a gift I receive? It's not empowered by going and trying a little harder. Empowered by making sure you're in a good community and connected and all these things in a poof, like a formula. Those help, and obviously that's why we're here and we need one another. That's why Paul's writing this to Timothy to say, in the body, y'all need one another. Paul's in jail, isolated. He needs those encouraging and refreshing brothers and sisters to come around him. He knows Timothy needs that. But to be empowered by grace is to receive a beautiful and eternal, a captivating gift of Christ's promises that are always better than the allure of sin. That inward desire to capitulate and not really to to lay it on as strong because you might get shame. That desire to put it away a little bit longer because it's not really that bad and everyone's doing it. And don't worry, it's not affecting anyone else. To be strengthened, to be empowered by the gift of grace that means Christ's promises are better, truer, more real and flourishing for now and eternity because they're based on Christ. And that's the very pattern that we started with, the pattern of the sound words that Paul passed along to Timothy is this this beautiful truth of the gospel and what it is anchored and centered on Christ and worked out in all of these areas of life that that grace is strengthening and empowering and encouraging in all of those places with family, with relationship and marriage and parenting, with singleness and heartache and divorce and in our workplaces and in the world and in politics and in prison and every avenue we could possibly think of, God is giving you his strength to allow you, to enable you, to empower you to proclaim the gospel and to not back down or turn away when it might bring you shame and suffering. That's the gift that God gives of the Holy Spirit. As we saw back in in 1.13, the Holy Spirit is not a spirit of fear. It's a spirit of power and love and self-control so that we can live out that pattern. 
in that reality of Christ's kingdom, regardless of the kingdom of the world, throws at us. And it's this pattern that proves that the grace of Christ is always better than anything the world suggests we should live for. Please pray with me. God, our Heavenly Father, as we come now to your table, let these words begin our life with you. Let these words encourage or anchor our life with you. Let these words give us hope in the midst of doubt, trust in the midst of worry, so that when we taste and see that the Lord is good, that we can be encouraged by this incredible gift of grace that these elements represent, that they picture the nourishment that Christ gives through His Spirit. Lord, I pray this is true for us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.